from Test Takers, this is the Hashtag Prep Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you learn more about standardized testing and college admissions so that you can help your students navigate this important time with accurate and insightful information. So prepare to learn the secrets that will help your students gain clarity, reduce stress, and work smarter, not harder. This is the Hashtag Prep Podcast. Welcome back to another week of Hashtag Prepped. My name is Naka, and this week we're going to be answering the question, what is on the SAT? The test has changed several times over the past few decades. Some parents may remember the test out of 1600 and may remember some of the trauma associated with some of those analogies. The test changed again in 2005 to a three-subject SAT out of 2400, and then again in 2015, the test changed once more to its current iteration, a test out of 1600. So it's important to know what students are expected to learn for the test and what they will be tested on since the test has changed so many times. To help me explain what is on the current SAT and do a deep dive on the content, I have our senior director, Brian Corden, from our last episode, and the president and founder of Test Takers, Frank Pamela, one of the leaders in the test prep community. All right, thanks, Naka. Yeah, I'm going to get you guys set up with understanding what's on the English portion of the SAT. Uh, the English section is two parts. You've got the reading and then you've got the writing. The actual SAT calls it the evidence-based reading and writing section. And so many of the students I work with, particularly at high schools like Bronx Science or Jericho, Syosset, are really math-minded students. So this is the section that they dread. The fact is the reading section of the SAT is the only section that requires virtually no outside knowledge whatsoever. I say virtually because you do need to have some understanding of vocabulary for certain questions, but it's not even like the old SATs, not going to refer to those dreaded analogies that some of uh, the parents listening might have done on their own SATs, where you had to know words like esoteric or perspicacious. It's not that kind of vocabulary so much. There is vocabulary included in the passages students will read, and they might occasionally be asked what a word means in context, but that'll generally speaking be a fairly common word, like appreciate, and you'll just need to understand which of the several definitions of this word is the one intended in this given context. You know, I appreciate the gift, obviously I'm grateful for it, but the value of the car appreciated, obviously increased. So that's, that's the outside knowledge part of the reading section of the SAT. But beyond that, it's just five passages you need to read and answer questions about in 65 minutes. Students freak out about this section because it's boring and it's long, but there's no outside knowledge needed. Every answer is contained inside the passage. So this is a test primarily of your focus and your ability to have the endurance to read these passages in the time given. I actually think that the reading section tells me the most about a student's reasoning skills of all three sections. Because the reading section tests what I believe to be a crucial skill of an educated human. The ability to tell the difference between a fact and an inference. So to give a really simple example, if I were to say to you, hey, was knock at the party last night? And you said, I didn't see knock at the party last night. For me to draw the conclusion that Naka wasn't at the party simply because you said you didn't see him is me drawing an inference without the proper evidence. And that's why this is called the evidence-based reading and writing section. Because I don't actually know for a fact that Naka wasn't at the party. The only evidence I have was that you didn't see him there. So the SAT will of course include these answer choices that seem like very logical conclusions to draw from what you've read, but you don't actually have the proof of that. 
And this is why there's so much miscommunication on Twitter and with headlines. You just kind of see this, this buzzy thing and you think you have all the facts, but you don't. So the reading section is trying to separate people from knowing what's actually stated versus what you think that means. The reason this is so difficult for so many students is it's almost completely counter to what's taught in English classes in high school. You're taught literature, which is all about reading for deeper meaning and, you know, digging out what's not there and what hasn't been said explicitly. That is the opposite of how you should be approaching the SAT reading section. This is more like reading an article in the New York Times. You're not supposed to read an article and come up with your own interpretation of what it could have meant. The article delivered facts. Do you understand what facts were presented? That's what the SAT reading is doing. Is it long? Sure. Is it boring? Yeah, fine. But if that's the biggest obstacle, you kinda gotta put your big kid pants on and suck it up for this section. Because the fact is, every answer is in the passage. It is explicit, it is literal, it is not inferential, you don't draw assumptions or conclusions, and that's ultimately the skill being tested. It's a hard skill to cram because there's no knowledge. It's not like learning what a semicolon does versus a comma. It's not like learning the Pythagorean theorem. It's really just understanding you have to look at this passage for the information it provided and match an answer to explicitly what the passage said. The five passages you need to complete in the 65 minutes are in a very specific order. The first passage you read will always be an excerpt from fiction. It could be modern from the past 20, 30 years. It could be a little older, maybe from the late 1800s or early 1900s. The second and fourth passages will be excerpts from some sort of social science arena, including history or politics or psychology, economics, something of the more kind of social science nature. And then the third and final passages, the fifth one, will cover the more standard sciences, your biology, chemistry, physics, earth science, anything with the universe or animals, things like that, studies, research, things, things of that nature. And of those five passages, one will actually contain a pair of passages that you need to analyze for the way they develop their arguments, either for or against each other. Some sort of relationship will be, will be important to detect between the two passages. And then two of the passages will also contain a graphic, an accompanying graphic, maybe summarizing a study that was discussed or some sort of relevant chart or table regarding the passages material, and you'll have to understand that too. So that's the reading section. There's a lot more to it, of course, in terms of chart and technique, but that's why courses are beneficial, and that's what we do at Test Takers. Thank you, Brian, for that breakdown of the reading section. But your English score is not just your reading score. It's a combination of your reading and writing score. So let's talk about section two of the test, the writing portion. Brian, can you give us a deep dive on that? The writing section is more conventional in terms of testing knowledge that you might be expected to know. Unfortunately, for many of our listeners in New York State, New York State curriculum in English for high school doesn't formally include grammar. So you might have a really great English teacher who kind of took it upon him or herself to teach you grammar and just sort of, you know, learn the important ways to write, whether a run-on sentence or apostrophes or a verb agreement. When I use a phrase like subordinating conjunction with my kids, I, I watch their faces just go, go white because they don't know what that means. Prepositional phrase, object pronoun, relative clause, subordinating conjunction. These terms have not been taught to most of our students simply because New York State doesn't have a, a regents test to test grammar. So therefore it's, it's overlooked in the high school curriculum. 
Uh, and, you know, instead, you can tell me the plot of Lord of the Flies. You can tell me what the symbolism of, you know, the skull and Hamlet means. But you can't tell me what a comma does. Many of my students can't even tell me the difference between I and me. Right? They think maybe I is formal and me is informal. Completely wrong, obviously. But they just haven't learned subject pronoun versus object pronoun, which is a two-second lesson if, if a teacher takes the time to do that. So for the writing on the SAT, grammar is integral. It's, there are 44 questions in writing split among four passages, so 11 questions per passage. And within each passage, there are five grammar questions and six what are called expression of ideas questions. By the way, the SAT's term for grammar is standards of English convention. And yeah, that covers things like agreement issues with verbs and pronouns and peril structure. It covers punctuation, particularly with sentence structure. So run-ons with comma splices or semicolons and colons and, and what a dash does. And it also includes a few miscellaneous rules like dangly modifiers and idiomatic expressions, like you depend on something rather than depending for something. That's grammar. The other half of writing, which technically is slightly more than 50% of the section, tests not if the writing is grammatically correct, but if the writing is thematically appropriate. So it's testing whether you understand the logical flow of a passage and what's important to include and actually what's off topic or what doesn't develop an idea properly. If your sentences are connected together correctly, if the words you're choosing, the tone you're using is appropriate. So if you think of writing as basically testing both correct English and appropriate English. Appropriate meaning good writing rather than necessarily correct writing. So that's the dichotomy in the writing section. And again, everything we do in test stickers is to kind of get you to understand exactly what those questions mean and how to answer it. But that's the English section in what I hope is a nutshell. The front end of the SAT is front-loaded with English and grammar, where you need to focus, but the back end of the test is math, where you have your 25-minute non-calculator math section followed by your 55-minute calculator section. So to help us go through the math topics that are on the SAT and some of the strategies associated with it, we have Frank Pamela here, the president and founder of Test Taker. Uh, The math part of the SAT, as Naka said, it consists of two sections for a total of 80 minutes worth of time and 58 questions. If you do the the math on that, you'll discover it's a little bit less than a minute and a half per question on average. That said, some questions will be quick and some will take quite a bit of time. And in fact, the questions on the math section are basically arranged in order of difficulty. So in the first math section, which is a non-calc section and includes 20 math questions, questions will be arranged from easiest to hardest, and presumably the easier questions will also be the ones that you find quicker to do. And then when you go over to the non-calc section, that one will have 38 questions. And in those 38 questions, they will also be arranged from easiest to hardest. And again, the same, the same rule applies. There are two types of questions, two formats on the uh, SAT math. One of which is multiple choice, which is what everybody knows. They have four choices, A, B, C, D, for each question. Uh, that's a change in 2016. Anaka mentioned that the, the test underwent a transition in 2016. It absolutely affected the math section, and one of the changes is it went from the multiple choice uh, questions having five choices to the multiple choice questions having four choices. They also, as you might have heard, changed it so that there's no longer a penalty for wrong answers. So it really behooves a student to at least put a guess down for every question on the test. In addition to the 45 multiple choice questions, the remaining 13 questions are, we call them grid-in questions. There's a fancier term on the test itself, we call it grid-in. And a grid-in question allows you to grid-in a number 
anything from zero through 9,999. So it's much harder, for example, to guess correctly on a grid in question than it is on a multiple choice, where even if you have no idea, you've got a one in four chance of getting it right. By the way, just a little side note, despite that fact, we do inform our students that the most likely grid in answer on a guess is the number two. It was something that we reasoned out before the test was released and are very proud of the fact that as the test got released, we noticed we were 100% correct, that the most common answer on a grid in is two. It's still an uncommon answer. You're more likely to not get it right than to get it right, but if you're gonna have to put a guess on a grid in any way, uh, two is a good choice to pick. So that's the sort of format of the math part of the SAT. What's on the test itself? What kind of math? That also underwent a change in 2016. Prior to that, if, if, those, uh, if there are parents listening who remember their SAT and weren't so traumatized by it that they still recall the experience, the old SAT math was sort of famous for having a bunch of questions on it that didn't feel like math. They felt more like reasoning questions or almost like brain teasers. They required very little actual math knowledge but did require a lot of thinking and a lot of reasoning skill. And in fact, the SAT used to be called SAT colon reasoning test, okay? Um, and it's no longer got that name, and it's in part because of some of the changes that have been made. So the old math really was uh, curriculum free. That's an expression that the College Board would use in describing it, which is to say it wasn't tied to any math curriculum. And in order to do so, there really wasn't a lot of math math tested on it. A little bit, a little bit, but not too much. The new test doesn't make that claim. In fact, it claims to be uh, aligned with the Common Core curriculum, and it does have a lot more math math in it, especially algebra. So the new test is primarily algebra. In fact, the algebra is subdivided into what most people would call Algebra 1 and Algebra 2 what the College Board calls the heart of algebra, whatever that is, and Passport to Advanced Math, which is an even funnier name. And those are two parts of the algebra. They have reduced the amount of arithmetic and geometry to almost nothing, not quite nothing, but almost nothing. And they've added a part called Data Analysis, which has several portions to it, including things like standard deviation and understanding of that, um, or a good uh, experimental test design, things like that, like not having biased samples in your, in your design, that kind of thing. And that's basically the, uh, the content of the test. Now, one of the reasons that we know so much about the test is that we've constructed a database of all 1,160 questions that have been released on the 20 SATs that have been released. It's 58 questions per SAT in math. 58 times 20 is 1160. This is, I guess, why I teach math. Um, and uh, as a result, we are really able to do deep dives on what is on this test, and not just in terms of content. I mean, in terms of other things also. Um, what is the average question length for an SAT math section in terms of verbiage, which has been an issue? Namely, when they first came out with the new test in 2016, there was a sense that the questions were too wordy making it hard for students to get through, also making it hard for students whose English isn't great to, have, to get through the math part, which is not the intention of the math section. And other items like, you know, we, we have certain powerful techniques that we use in the math that are very usable on many, many different questions. And one of the things that we keep track of in our database is exactly how many of these questions are susceptible to plug-in. How many of them would plug-in be the preferred way to solve the question? That's one of our math techniques on how many of them would plug in be a possible method, but maybe not the preferred method. Ditto for some of our other techniques that we teach in the course. 
So the database has really given us a great sense and a great resource to be able to determine exactly what's on the test, exactly what techniques and methods will be will work on the test with what frequency, uh, what differences uh, are there in terms of what's expected on the easy questions versus the hard questions, and things of that uh, of that nature. And that easy hard is actually more important than it seems. Some of our strategies actually directly involve the fact that the math test is constructed from easiest to hardest. The first most obvious is don't rush through the easy questions. They're worth just as much as the hard ones. They're easier to get right, but sometimes if a student is careless in order to get to the end of the section, where they're not picking up as many points anyway, because that's where the hard questions are and they're all worth the same amount of credit, they rush through the easy questions and make too many careless mistakes on questions they should be getting right. And for those students, we have a specific strategy and we spe specify which questions we think they should focus on during the time that they have allotted. Another strategy that depends on the difficulty of the questions being known when you go in and take the test is a little strategy we like to call Joe Bloggs. And the idea behind that is Joe Bloggs is the average Joe, it's a British term actually, for the average Joe, what we might call John Q. Public in America or, or perhaps average Joe. When I think of that now, I think of a reality TV show that was on for a short while, so it's hard for me to use that expression anymore without a smirk. <laughs> the idea is this. Sometimes a student will find himself or herself at the end of a section, and there's a question, it's the second to last question, and they're looking at it and saying, oh wow, this one is so easy, I can get this one right in four seconds flat just by adding these two numbers together. Well, wait a second. If that's true, what is this question doing sitting as the second hardest question on the section, which you can tell by its location within the section? Something's off. And it's sort of almost like an alarm that we train our students to have go off in their heads that on the hard questions anyway, it can't be too easy to do. On the easy ones, that's a totally fine answer. But on the hard ones, that becomes a little bit of a different, uh, different game. So that's in a nutshell what the math section contains, what it doesn't contain, and a little bit about how that affects the way a student can properly prepare for the test and effectively prepare for the test and how they can maximize their score based on certain simple but powerful principles. Thank you, Frank and Brian, for that breakdown on the content for the reading, math, and writing on the SAT. I do want to spend a few minutes talking about what happens after Section 4, after that last math section on the actual SAT date. Because when many students prepare for their SATs, they usually take a four-section SAT. On test day, they may come across a fifth experimental section, which is used by College Board to test out future questions. So that could be a mix of reading, math, writing. It's about 20 minutes. Just students expect to see that it doesn't count towards your score. Historically, we've never seen it count towards a score. It's really there to test out future questions. But if you do ask your proctor on test day, does this count? They'll give you a kind of a political response such as, this may or may not count. In the history of test takers, we've never seen it count. So just keep that in mind. And as many parents and students have seen on the news, there's no more SATSA after the June 2021 administration. It is gone. So if you are registered for it, not many colleges were looking at it before, even fewer now that it's gone. So it's maybe not in your best interest to waste time and take that. So focus on getting your score out of 1600, that four-section SAT. To wind down this week's episode of Hashtag Prepped, I want to talk about one last aspect of the test, and that's not really a section of the SAT, more of another dimension of the test, and that is the timing that we've been talking about today. You have about three hours to do 154 questions. 
Nothing easy to do. So for our hashtag prep pro tip of the week, it is to leave no blanks. There is no guessing penalty on this new SAT. So don't ever catch yourself not doing anything. Either bubble in B or grid in two, as Frank said, statistically the most frequently appearing answer. All right, good luck with your testing. Sitting across from me is the president of Test Takers, Frank Pamela, our senior site director, Brian Corden. My name is Naka, and this is Hashtag Prep.